And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West, the most haunted city in the country, and a cold, cold place to be on this January 23rd. It's the 23rd day of the year. 342 days remain till the year is over with. And January 23rd is... A lot of things happened on this date in history. 393, Roman Emperor Theodosius I proclaimed his eight-year-old son, Honorius, co-emperor. That's something to take to school with you. You're the co-emperor. 971, using crossbows. Song Dynasty troops soundly defeat a war elephant corps of the Southern Han at Shiloh. And you haven't lived till you've been on the receiving end of a war elephant charge. I saw one once. Wouldn't want to be involved in it. 1264. In a conflict between King Henry III of England and his rebellious barons led by Salma de Montfort, King Louis IX of France issues a maize of Amiens. Once out a decision in favor of Henry that later leads to the Second Barons' War, the fifteen fifty six saw the deadliest earthquake in history. Shanxi earthquake at Shanxi Province, China. Death tolls estimated to be eight hundred and thirty thousand. Fifteen seventy, which was a remarkable day in history. James Stewart, first Earl of Moray, regent for the infant King James the Sixth of Scotland, is assassinated by a gun. First recorded instance of such an occurrence in history. And let's see. Seventeen nineteen, the Principality of Liechtenstein created within the Holy Roman Empire. 1788, Georgetown College, the first Catholic university in the U.S., is founded in Georgetown, Maryland, which is now a part of Washington, D.C. When Bishop John Carroll, Reverend Robert Moynou, Reverend John Ashton purchased land for the proposed Academy for the Education of Youth. 1793 saw the second partition of Poland. 1795, after an unbelievable charge across the frozen Zyder Zee, the French cavalry captured 14 Dutch ships and 850 guns, in a rare occurrence of a battle between ships and cavalry. 1846, slavery in Tunisia is abolished. Speaking of that, I read that California plans on giving the descendants of, uh, well, literally anybody, $5 million in reparations. Now, the question I have is where are they going to get the money? If they plan on giving tax, taxpayer money, we have to have a talk about that. Uh, 1870, the Marias Massacre place in Montana. U.S. cavalry killed 173 Native Americans, mostly women and children. 
and then 1879, the Anglo Zulu War, where on the same day the British suffered one of its largest defeats and the Battle of Warts Drift ended, where 156 uh, British held off 4,000 Zulus. The Maolos Constitution is inaugurated, established the first Philippine Republic. Miguel Ronaldo is sworn in as its first president. 1900, the Second Boer War, the Battle of Spion Comp between the forces of the South African Republic and the, the Orange Free State and the British forces ends in a British defeat. The most powerful military in the world had their ass handed to them. 1904, Edison Fire, the Norwegian coastal town of Edison is devastated by fire. Left 10,000 homeless, one person dead. Kaiser Wilhelm II funds the rebuilding of the town in Jugendstil style. 1909, RMS Republic, a passenger ship of the White Star Line, becomes the first ship to use the CQD distress signal after colliding with another ship, the SS Florida, off the Massachusetts coastline. Six people were killed in the collision. Republic sinks the next day. Uh, 1912, the International Opium Convention is signed at The Hague. The, uh, 1920, the Netherlands refuses to surrender the exile Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany to the Allies. 1941, Charles Lindbergh testifies before Congress and recommends the U.S. negotiate a neutrality pact with Adolf Hitler. He was a great admirer of the Fuhrer. 1942, World War II, the Battle of Rabaul commences. Japan's invasion of Australia's territory of New Guinea. Also in 43, troops of the British 8th Army captured Tripoli in Libya from the German-Italian Panzer Army. 1945, German Admiral Karl Dönitz launches Operation Hannibal. And for those who are not familiar with Operation Hannibal, it was a German naval operation involving the evacuation by sea of German troops and civilians from the uh, Kuruman pocket in East Prussia, West Prussia, and Pomerania Mid-January to May 1945, as the Red Army advanced during the East Prussia and East Pomeranian uh, offenses and subsidiary operations, one of the largest evacuations of sea in history, even, I understand, larger than Dunkirk. The uh, 1957 American inventor Walter Frederick Morrison sells the rights to his flying disc to Whammo Toy Company. That flying disc later became the Frisbee. Uh, 1960, the Bathus uh, scape, the USS Tristy, breaks a death record by descending to 35,790 feet in the Pacific Ocean. The uh, 1961, the Portuguese luxury cruise ship Santa Maria is hijacked by opponents of the Estado Novo regime with the intention of waging war until 
dictator Antonio de Olivier Salazar is overthrown. In 1963, the, the Guinea-Bissau War of Independence officially begins with PAIGC guerrilla fighters attacking the Portuguese army stationed in uh, Titi. Uh, 1964 saw the 24th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution prohibiting the use of poll tax in national elections. It was formally ratified on this date. Uh, let's see... 1967, Milton Keynes of England uh, is founded as a new town by order of council with a planning brief to become a city of 250,000 people. An initial international designation designated area enclosed uh, three existing towns and 21 villages. The area to be developed is largely farmland with evidence of continual settlement dating back to the Bronze Age. 1968, the USS Pueblo is attacked and seized by the Korean People's Navy. Um, 1985, World Airways Flight uh, 30H overshoots the runway at Logan International Airport in Boston, crashes into Boston Harbor. Two people are presumed to be dead. The uh, 1986... The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducts its first members. Little Richard, Chuck Berry, James Brown, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, Fats Domino, the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Elvis, the Pelvis Presley. Um, 1987, Mohammed Saeed Hersey Morgan sends a letter of death to Somali President Siad Bari, proposing the genocide of the Sak people. 1997, Madeleine Albright becomes the first woman to serve as U.S. Secretary of State. And 1998, Netscape announces Mozilla. The intention to release communicator code is open source. Um, 2001, five people attempt to set themselves on fire in Beijing's Tiananmen Square. Now that's an act many people later claim is staged by the Chinese Communist Party to frame uh, Falun Gong uh, and thus escalate their persecution. 2002, U.S. journalist Daniel Pearl is kidnapped in Karachi, Pakistan and subsequently murdered. <coughs> Excuse me. 2018, a 7.9 earthquake occurs in the Gulf of Alaska. Tide is uh, the sixth largest earthquake ever recorded in the U.S. No reports of significant damage or fatalities, though. Also in 2018, on that same date, a double car bombing in Benghazi, Libya, kills at least 33 and wounds dozens. <coughs> the victims include both military personnel and civilians. In 2018, the China-U.S. Uh, trade war begins when President Trump puts tariffs on Chinese solar panels and washing machines. Well, it's, uh, we live in a strange world, no question about it. 
and of course, many questions uh, revolve around uh, how everything really started. In our last show, we were talking about um, Zachariah Sitchin and uh, his research into the Anunnaki and the Nephilim. When they landed here, according to taking the Sumerian tablets as historical reporting, when our visitors landed here uh, and came ashore, they were they were in a marsh, and they drained it. The uh, now, if if all the stories that um, that were carved into those tablets are fantasy and science fiction. You have to ask yourself, who came up with the idea of putting science fiction stories into uh, kiln-drying tablets? That seems a little drastic, but if in fact you're writing history, it seems logical. Now, a number of Sumerian scholars uh, believe the tablet information was um, put there by the Sumerians themselves. These contributions included development, use of written script, uh, the development of kills for baking the the clay into uh, a permanent method of passing the information down. But Sitchin went a step further. He realized it wasn't the Sumerians who developed the civilizing features that uh, led to this material uh, being permanently inscribed, but the Nephilim who gave human the skills and knowledge as gifts. Um, and he followed in the footsteps of Kramer enumerate the scope of the civilizing features described on the tablets. Even Kramer, who studied a plethora of tablets over many years, didn't recognize the, the modern space-age um, implications. What was inscribed on the tablets? Now, another important contribution made by Sitchin he brought to everyone's attention the link between the tablets, which had what purported to be ancient history and information laid out in the Bible. And he explains this comparison source by uh, saying, since the biblical story of creation, like the other tales of the beginnings in Genesis, stem from Sumerian origin, the biblical tale is but an edited version of the Sumerian reports. If the Sumerians came first, what they reported was the basis for anything written later on. 
He identified the Samaria material as the source of the Bible's first book, and that lended credibility to the historical truth of the Bible. Because if the Sumerian tablets are historical reporting, the book of Genesis, which basically is a takeoff on the Sumerian tablets, are historical as well. So the question becomes then, why were Sitchin's findings different from the tablet explanations already found in print? You've got to keep in mind that the redactions and translations of the uniform tablets first came into public view at the end of the 19th and early in the 20th century. And uh, Sitchin was 90 when he died, and in his lifespan, the world witnessed the birth of all the achievements that gave uh, modern society its everyday and advanced technologies and its ever-expanding array of space technologies and newly developed scientific information. The technology array that emerged in Sitchin's lifetime includes a range of phenomena, like airplanes supporting human flight, rockets, and space vehicles that make take people off this planet and into orbit, and space technology that can uh, gather data from the edge of our solar system. He also saw the development of technology that can scan the outer reaches of our universe, and he also, uh, prior to his death, witnessed plans to send humans to Mars. Of course, that hadn't happened yet, but it's still in the planning stages. Now, it's important to realize that none of these technologically-based space-oriented capabilities and their underlying uh, concepts were even dreamed of when the first scholars struggled to uh, understand the messages of space travel embedded in the ancient clay tablets. These ancient travelers were using technologies the world's modern societies only recently have invented. Uh, it was uh, Sitchin's uh, space-age perspective and astuteness that allowed him to understand what the early Sumerian scholars couldn't even see in the source material because it hadn't happened yet. They were born before it was even thought of. So when these scholars encountered tablet stories telling of humans using machines that could fly above the Earth's surface with no restriction from gravity or the crew of spacemen circling the Earth in a spacecraft, allowing the astronauts on board to communicate back to Earth, such discussions would have, rightly so at the time, been looked at as science fiction, fantasy, some sort of magical imaginative thinking, or even prayers to an unseen heavenly entity. That the records discussed weapons that literally zapped their targets, or the penetrating beam that brought death certainly is realistic in the 21st century, Described in uh, on artifacts surviving from 2000 BC, such content was more than fantastic; it was absolutely unbelievable. So, did the scholars? Uh, what did they do? They did the best they could. They they call this type of information myth, urban legend. When Sitchin laid out the details he uncovered in his research, he was fully aware his findings seriously departed from what had been published previously. You know, he was treading on unplowed ground with his interpretation. So he carefully articulated 
the reaction that would, would ensue if and when he decided to publish his findings. Now, after years of intensive study, when he decided it was time to publish uh, the findings he had derived from his analysis of these ancient materials, he revealed his considerable intellectual bravery. He'd worked through thousands of clay tablets, journeyed to museum collections in the Near East, Europe, the Americas, to study the tablets that they had uh, with his own eyes. And through his work as a journalist in Palestine during World War II, he had developed superb organizational writing abilities, which he used to identify the first array of topics that he judged to be the, the most notable. And stepping into the book publishing arena with his first book, The Twelfth Planet, he made good use of his journalistic skills. He knew the importance of using sources to support his research findings. He carefully documented his uh, text with numerous sources he'd worked through. However, his publishers forced him to reduce the number of references he originally prepared to include in the publication. These advisors believe readers would be overwhelmed with a large amount of documentation to which Sitchin uh, included uh, only those sources he deemed to be essential, the ones absolutely needed uh, as a basis for his uh, discussion. And the first book, which was published in 1976, proved to be a groundbreaking volume. cover had this sentence printed on it, Astonishing Documentary Evidence of Earth's Celestial Ancestors. And with that one sentence, he tipped his hand as, the, as to what the book's main contribution was. And it attracted the global readership of those who were curious about the implications of that uh, subtitle. An EFO crash in New Mexico in 1947 at Roswell had raised the possibility of beings from another planet coming to, uh, or at least near the Earth. And the UFO event inadvertently set the stage for Sitchin's discussions. And in one very clear sense, it was a precursor to Sitchin's first book in that it paved the way to the idea that there were visitors from outer space. Now, as he put it pen to paper, it became clear to him he had far too much information for just one book. It had to do a series of books. And he called that first series... The Earth Chronicles. And eventually it took him 14 books. <coughs> Excuse me. To arrive at, uh, put out everything he wanted to say. He believed that fascinated members of the public would observe for themselves the validity of his findings. And he gave these interested fans an opportunity to see evidence with their own eyes. Um, he traveled to locate artifacts and structures, specific places that were referenced to uh, in the tablets, along with archaeological evidence, now found in museums in the Near East, the Mediterranean, South America, Mexico, and uh, European locations. And then he arranged and facilitated tours to these places, beginning in the early 1990s. Now, the early scholars who sought to unlock the secrets of the 
clay tablets faced a lot of challenges throughout their research process. First, they had to reassemble what appeared to be rubble, resulting from broken tablets. Extensive uh, reassembly of the tablets, uh, shards, was needed because many, if not most, of these clay artifacts had been seriously damaged and were transported from the places in Sumer and Assyria where they had been found. Moving them to, from the sites in the field of the museums and universities who owned them, for lack of a better term, I was not done with a white glove painstaking approach. Many of the field workers that collected them were hired from the local villagers. And to these locals, the clay things didn't look like valuable sources of historical information. So literally, they just tossed them in a box. And they were tossed by the wheelbarrow for the equivalent of dumpsters for transportation. Few knew at the time that these bits of clay were literally priceless. Excuse me, I don't know why I'm coughing and sneezing. Research effort uh, required to reassemble these tablets and get them into readable form was unbelievably formidable. Some of them are still in the process of being restored today. Now, the largest body of tablet finds came forward in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It required uh, intensive research efforts to reassemble them by the museum and academic uh, institutions that sponsored the expeditions. And each, you had to stop the uh, the peanut gallery. Each of the sponsoring organizations believed that what they discovered they owned, because they financed the expeditions. And reports of these excavations typically were presented at prestigious professional gatherings, and then they were put into print. The study of these clay tablets held even more challenges because they all needed to be decoded. Information they contained was in symbolic form. Reading what first looked like strange wedge-shaped symbols, linguistic analysis brought to light that the etched lines of the clay could be translated into syllables that were the basis of an actual language, which we now call Sumerian cuneiform. And as it turned out, this material proved to be the world's first recorded language. So certainly it wasn't used for writing science fiction and fantasy. The actual tablets found, for the most part, were actually copies of the original Sumerian tablets made by scribes and the civilizations that developed after Sumer and Assyria flourished. And it's very important to note that in the process, words were changed when the Information was brought into the Akkadian and Babylonian uh, vernaculars. These later scribes offered, substituted their own words for some of the original Sumerian words. And it was through this maze of complications and linguistic challenges that uh, Sitchin uh, worked to try to sort out the tablet stories and arrive at his own understanding of their meaning. Now, of course... He had detractors. Anybody who disagreed with uh, the leading lights in the archaeology field uh, was considered a, uh, well, was considered ignorant because he couldn't possibly be as brilliant as the archaeologist. Now, when you start... uh,
looking at the progression of the story. In, in an ancient time, long ago, in an outlying part of the Milky Way galaxy, the, the planet that rotated third from its star apparently had emerged from an ancient ice age when it became the destination of a small group of space travelers. We call them astronauts today. Who had identified this planet as holding large amounts of gold, a mineral that they needed to, uh, to maintain life on their own planet. And the leader of the astronauts was Ia, also known as Inki Ia, a Nephilim meaning people of the fiery rockets and those who came down. And these space travelers were explorers. They'd been sent by their king to land and carry out a gold procurement mission. Their home planet, called Nibiru, had a diminishing atmosphere and pulverized gold was needed to rectify the effects of this problem. And the planet they came to is what we know today as Earth. After surveying the land surrounding the body of water in which they splashed down, they... Uh, the leader of the, this group had his, uh, the rank and file of his expedition, known as the Anunnaki, built his residence on the banks of two major rivers that drained the uplands. And from the, from the bottom of the nearby water body, we call it the Persian Gulf today, they began to extract gold. Now this is the story that was laid out in the Sumerian tablets, that until... Sitchin came along, was looked at as science fiction, as if the ancients had time to sit down and write science fiction. Now, this information came to us from the diligent research of Sitchin, intrigued by one particular phrase, they came down. He launched a concerted effort to discover exactly what that meant. His first research efforts focused on the Sumerian tablets, drawing on the early scholarly work of Austin Henry Lloyd and uh, P. Jensen and George Smith. But he found that these scholars were at a loss to interpret many parts of the information that they'd obtained. One particularly confounding problem for him was the fact that the information appeared on tablets that were scientifically dated to be 6,000 years old. And the conclusion the early scholars drew was that they were reading about mythical and religious beliefs held by people who lived in very ancient times. Because certainly, everyone knows, the further back in time you go, the more primitive everyone becomes. Then Sitchin learned Sumerian so he could retranslate the tablets himself. And as he did, he found that his own renditions revealed recognizable concepts, not legends, mythical stories or religious beliefs, uh, contrary to what the early scholars uh, thought. Early scholars, understandably, were at a loss to recognize technologies that had not yet been invented in modern times. All the space-related concepts were totally... Um, undecipherable by them. But Sitchin had a different background from which to make his translation. He came to realize the tablets were recounting the actual activities of the ancient ones, the Nephilim and the Anunnaki. 
And these ancient texts were also discussing the landing and takeoff of space vehicles, communication between another planet and Earth, the use of flying vehicles for transportation from place to place, and the use of genetic science to create other beings. And to further support his growing assumption that flying technology was in use in the very ancient times, there were pictographs that appeared to be illustrations of what was discussed in the text. This material is the answer to Sitchin's lifelong question of who came down. Well, what was particularly interesting to Sitchin, being a biblical scholar, was the fact that the ancient tablet records uh, contained information that matched content found in biblical accounts, such as descriptions of a vehicle as a, a bird, a wind bird, a whirlwind that could rise heavenward with emitting brilliance. These are no doubt what they were talking about. They were talking about some type of flying machine, some very possibly something similar to a helicopter. In today's world, such observations and sightings like those documented in the Bible might thought to be phenomena now called unidentified uh, flying objects. Modern sightings often have been considered by some to be optical illusions of ground observers. In biblical times, reports of flying vehicle observations were made by notable people like Jacob and Ezekiel. Not only were their reports taken seriously, but they were considered worthy of inclusion in the biblical record. Jacob saw a sky ladder that, with beings going up and down. Ezekiel saw a machine with wheels within wheels. You know, scholars will recognize this early information as reportorial uh, evidence and might be inclined to suspect its veracity. Now, eyewitness evidence often is considered unreliable in today's world, where belief often is undermined with skepticism. And thus, the unbeliever, unbeliever might reject these biblical reports as hallucinations, dreams, or weird imaginings. If those with a skeptical mindset read Sitchin's work, they'll see well-documented evidence in support of the reality of these ancient observations provided the Bible is accepted as a historical document containing actual uh, history as well as theology. Monsignor Corrado Balducci, a notable uh, representative of the Vatican, told Sitchin if reports of unusual phenomena were not acceptable as valid evidence in biblical times, and all of today's religious uh, world would uh, crumble. Reports then as now were and are the pillars upon which religious belief was and is based. In a text of Sitchin's first book, The Twelfth Planet, in a chapter called The Nephilim, People of the Fire Rockets, he summarized large amounts of data so he can reassure his readers that this evidence has widespread uh, import. He told us that pictograms that accompany the text are convincing documentation in support uh, of the tablet material. So when did these sightings take place? The ancient accounts tell us that flying objects were common sightings during the olden days when the ancient ones were on the planet. Sightings like those even in the early days of Earth's settlements uh, continued throughout human history. And Sitchin lays out a space-oriented history of Earth's ancient settlements not previously discussed anywhere before his books were published. You know, Scholarly explanations that deal with how the first humans lived on 
earth folks mostly on hunter-gatherers accepted descriptions indicate these people were semi-nomadic lived in small family or tribal groups lived mostly in caves and they were thought to be the earliest of earth's inhabitants now traditional scholarship of what we generally referred to as prehistory offered plausible explanations to support the lifestyle of these people and the artifacts like stone tools provide widespread evidence of how the implements improved their lives uh, especially their hunting efforts some coastal areas especially in southeast asia long-standing ancient habitats uh, were inundated wiping out ancient evidence of settlement and these impacts were the result of glacial melting causing sea levels to rise and research also was complicated by interpretive conflicts between the already published scholarly reports that uh, contradicted the findings of others. When Sitchin published explanations of a completely different uh, way of living, a much older way of living, namely built-up settlements that gave rise to what we now know as an urban lifestyle, even though supported by tablet evidence, these findings were judged to be so unusual they were just disbelieved. Questions like this were highlighted. How could Stone Age hunter-gatherers develop such complex ways of living? They reason that the evidence uh, or its interpretation had to be wrong. Obviously, the early uh, hunter-gatherers couldn't have developed the features of civilized uh, living. So who was responsible for the such development? Well, Sitchin had a ready answer. It was a technologically advanced Anunnaki who used flying technology for traveling through space. This urban way of life came from another planet. When Sitchin and read the same tablets that the uh, first scholars studied, his, uh, in their original language as well as in his redacted form, he realized that the tablets held in coded form a wealth of information about ancient gods and the cities they built. It's important for us to realize who the Anunnaki were and what they accomplished on Earth because their history is actually our history. In order to learn about these explorer astronauts, we need somebody to study and interpret the records they left for us. And Sitchin did exactly that. According to what he determined, supported by ancient evidence, about 445,000 years ago, the first contingent of space explorers arrived on Earth to accomplish their primary purpose of identifying sources of gold and extracting and preserving the gold so it could be sent up to their planet to be used to save the atmosphere. And scientifically, we have determined that such a process would, in fact, be uh, viable. The original group to come down to planet Earth was small, only 50 Anunnaki with one Nephilim leader. They landed somewhere in the Indian Ocean and made their way to the Arabian Sea and northward to the marshlands created by two major rivers where they waded ashore in what we now call Iraq. Uh, the planet was undergoing glacial melting as a consequence of climate warming, which is a very natural process in spite of what John Kerry has to say. And the swollen rivers inundated most low-lying areas around the world. 
Now, as soon as they arrived at their planned destination, the leader of this mission, whose name, according to the tablets, was Inki, E-N-K-I, he was the chief scientist, immediately directed the workers to drain the swamps. He also the firstborn of the king of the home planet, Nibiru, and he'd been appointed by his father to lead this expedition. So he, his words were followed. He next directed his own house to be built, and it was called E-R-I-D-U, House and Faraway Built. That was um, named in Sumerian syllables. This became Earth Station 1 and was a lonely outpost on an alien planet. And at those very early stages of Earth's settlement, Yankee's several engineering skills, extensive knowledge of hydrology were put to good use. He initially focused on his attention on terraforming activities, the building of dikes, drainage networks, forging a connection between the two rivers, this allowed the two river channels to merge, forming a larger channel that could be dredged. And his efforts were successful in producing sufficient dry land for the construction of a large settlement. Now, historically speaking, Yankee's early engineering successes were dwarfed by his greatest earth-based challenge. That came much later. It was a challenge that reflected outside observers on his home planet on the question of whether he was an effective leader of this extremely important gold mining mission. When the explorer astronauts turned their attention to the sea floor the nearby large body of water where gold was to be found, this gold seabed was mineral rich. Gold was among the se several minerals deposited there. But it was so dispersed over that, that over time the explorers realized it wouldn't meet the, the volume needed to satisfy the gold requirements of the home planet. A second gold site was needed. They found that in South Africa. It was reported to be rich in a needed gold. And in that area, gold indeed was plentiful, but it required hard labor of deep underground shafts to extract and bring it to the surface. And this needed to be transported by boat to the spaceport. And all these tasks required large amounts of hard labor. When the gold mine had been in operation for a few thousand Earth years, Inky was faced with a challenge that would have been interpreted to <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Mm. As a negative reflection on his leadership skills, the Anunnaki workers no longer wanted to toil in the deep, dark, dirty mines. Over time, these miners became extremely disgruntled with the, their hard-working conditions. They were used to flying in space. Exploring other planets. So they essentially staged a mutiny. And Inky, as the leader of the operation, had to face a disruption of the flow of gold required to supply Nibiru's needs. He was faced with what we would today call a confrontational labor problem and work stoppage. And this crisis required a report to the home planet. And when I knew the king on Nibiru, now these entities were very long-lived by all reports. Learned that the gold procurement mission was interrupted, he called a meeting of the High Council of the notable Nephilim then on Earth and came down himself to arbitrate a solution. At the same time, he was facing uh, serious dynastic issues on Nibiru itself. 
At the root of the problem was the fact that he'd previously usurped the throne and the deposed king's grandson was causing trouble. So Anu decided to bring Enlil, his second-born son, and the deposed king's troublesome grandson with him during his visit to Earth. According to Sitchin, both decisions to take Enlil with him and also to take Kamarbi the grandson along ended up making the visit once marred by strife and for Anu uh, filled with personal agony. The decision to bring Enlil to Earth and put him in charge led to a heated arguments with Enki. Arguments echoed in the text so far discovered. The enraged Enki uh, realized he'd lost control of the of the whole operation on Earth. He threatened to leave Earth and go back to Nibiru. Enki's problem was he'd been operating on Earth as founder and commander-in-chief. When Enlil arrived, his very presence indicated that Anu was changing the command structure and putting Enlil in charge. Enki's resentment was expressed clearly to his father. In spite of his angst, when the High Council convened and the labor problem was laid out, Enki volunteered a solution to the king and the assembled Nephilim. He announced he would use his scientific knowledge to genetically engineer beings who would be capable of performing the gold-mining task. Enki indicated, uh, according to the tablets, that to accomplish the necessary genetic upgrade, he had put an Anunnaki imprint on the hominid that already walked the earth. And although this hominid was deemed unsuitably, unsuitable intellectually for following directions, a necessary requirement for workers in the mines, he felt that this uh, hominid was sufficiently akin to the Anunnaki for his plan to work. And the hominid had been seeded in what became Earth when the original ancient planet Tiamat, that was Earth's name before, she was victim of a, of a primordial collision, had uh, it collided with Nibiru. One of the series of uh, huge celestial impacts. And one of these catastrophes ripped the ancient planet in two and another shunted it into a new orbital position, third from the sun thereby causing her name to be changed to Earth. The range of Tiamat became further uh, pulverized, or now what we know as the asteroid belt. You know, the, the outcome of the High Council deliberations on the uh, mining mutiny was that Enki was granted permission to genetically develop a docile worker. The assurance of the Nephilim's chief nurse, Enki's half-sister, Nin Hursarg, he worked to create a primitive worker, a helpful worker, but not the slave that others wanted, who would obediently work with the Nephilim and the Anunnaki. And using the earth-based hominid and genes from one of their own, Enki fashioned just such a willing worker. And the sources of this undertaking brought into existence a particularly noteworthy species we call Homo sapiens. Well, Sechin's investigations of uh, the more obscure passages on the uh, Sumerian tablets uh, led to him uh, putting the story together. Uh, he reports that the beings created by the Nephilim, called Earthlings, and were intelligent. Under Anunnaki tutelage, they became scribes and accountants and astronomers and bricklayers and manufacturers and scientists and 
literally everything that they needed to build a uh, urban civilization. They developed kills and made bricks and built buildings, the ziggurats uh, among those. They were taught and learned how to grow grain and fruit trees, and they learned to make beer. They kept meticulous business transaction records and even studied and read the stars. These earthlings are found to be so valuable to Nephilim that they eventually were given the elements of civilization, and even kingship was transferred to a, a select few, and the Anunnaki found uh, noteworthy individuals. They were certainly not the slaves that others on the council wanted. So, when Sitchin was laying out his Twelfth Planet, which is a fascinating book, um, he asked an interesting question. What was it that after hundreds of thousands and even millions of years of painfully slow human development abruptly changed everything so completely and in a one, two, three punch, about 11,000 to 7,400 to 3,800 B.C. transformed primitive nomadic hunters and food gatherers into farmers and pottery makers, then into builders of cities and engineers and mathematicians and astronomers and metallurgists. Merchants, musicians, judges, doctors, authors, librarians, and priests. Something happened. And that question is as provocative as it is enlightening. And the Sumerian tablets gives us the answer. And the dates, 11,000, 7,400, 3,800, they are 3,600 and 3,200 years respectively apart. That's the variation in the rotational interval of Nibiru's orbit. Sitchin also unraveled several Earth-based mysteries that perplex scholars and scientists, such as the origins of the huge, unusual stone features seen on Earth's landscape, like the Sphinx and the Great Pyramid, Stonehenge, Avebury, Newgrange, and hundreds of other structures made with multi-ton-shaped stones. And these huge artifacts have presented explanatory challenges to... Uh, Experts, archaeologists, engineers, and scientists have tried to understand how they were constructed and who might have had the capability to construct them. As a result of Silva Sitchin's work, we now know that these were constructed, uh, many of them, if, if not all, of the, uh, were done by the Anunnaki. And as a result of Sitchin's research, we have new explanations for old questions and answers that seriously enlarge our understanding. These are characteristics of a, what you might call a shifted explanatory uh, paradigm. In actuality, this was a an invasion, but not the type of invasion we see in our science fiction. This was an invasion of knowledge and a modification of what became Homo sapien. And of course, they didn't arrive at their uh, end result immediately. They went through different steps. Homo erectus. Um, as they added and took away characteristics of their um, project. Well, at this moment... We've run out of time. 
We'll talk more tomorrow. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show. Having saying, have a truly great evening.